Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 5 this morning. And uh, while you're turning, a couple of quick things. First, I did want to mention, you may have noticed, and we've mentioned it before, each week at the end of my message after I pray, there are a few uh, volunteers that'll be up here just in case you want to talk with anybody about anything related to the message, you're welcome to talk to me, but also you can talk to them as well. And they're also here to pray with you if you need somebody to pray with. They're students who just have a heart to minister to you and and so have volunteered to be up here and be available if you need somebody to talk to or pray with you. Second thing is, I don't know if anybody tried, uh, last week I mentioned as one of the application points the 24-hour media fast idea just to allow you to pull away from the distractions that surround us and to pay attention, as we read, uh, to the gospel of Christ. I don't know if anybody did it or not. My wife and I actually did this weekend, and uh, uh, I would encourage it for you guys. It was a great experience. The morning was a little rough as I was uh, tempted to get back on the computer or turn the TV on and get on Facebook or start tweeting or, you know, whatever it was, and uh, my little fingers were feeling kind of lonely. And uh, so I It was a challenging experience, but uh, as the day went on, I really found that I was able to focus in on the relationships around me, my kids, my wife, but also uh, spend some additional time with the Lord praying and reading the scripture. So I'd encourage that if you guys haven't had a chance to do that as an application from last week, um, from Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. But this week we're going to be in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5, starting in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Would you pray with me? Our God, we're grateful to you that in Jesus Christ we have rescue, we have life from the grave. We no longer need fear death because Jesus has overcome it. 
Father, we praise you that you gave your only son to become a man and yet still retain uh, his deity so that God in the flesh could walk among us, experience the things we experience, suffer and die as we suffer and as we will die, and yet overcome all of those things. Father, we're grateful. And we come to you this morning acknowledging that you alone are the source of life. And we pray as we study your word, you would help us to understand it. Father, move in our hearts because we struggle with doubts and with fears and challenges, we pray. Empower us to believe and truly believe. And then, Father, overcome our laziness and our resistance to you and allow us to do your will. Thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you thought, uh, I am not fulfilling the potential that I have for my life. Uh, Maybe the dignity that I would like to have isn't quite here. Uh, I found myself in a situation like that the summer after I graduated from college. I was living in a house with four other guys that I knew fairly well. And uh, when I moved into the house, I noticed that the house was pretty messy pretty dirty. There was stuff on the floor and uh, the kitchen was starting to get a little bit messy. And what had happened was the one guy in the house, and and you guys who live in apartments or houses know, there's usually one guy that really takes it upon himself to make sure that things stay presentable, that it doesn't turn into just a horrible pigsty. And uh, that guy had moved out right before I moved in. And so uh, this place was beginning to decline already by the time I moved in. Well, it just got worse. It got to the point where, uh, I mean, there, there would be trash on the floor. The kitchen was the worst. Uh, guys would eat their food and then just leave the dishes on the counter or in the sink just for days on end, maybe weeks. One guy, uh, his philosophy was, if it's dirty, don't wash it, just soak it. So he would just uh, fill up a dish with water and food and just leave it on the counter for days on end. And uh, it was disgusting. And pretty quickly, uh, the mice began to figure out that they had a little good thing going in here too. And so uh, the mice began to come into the house. And uh, I, I'll be honest, mice kind of freaked me out a little bit. And so I would lie in bed at night, listening to them skittering around my eyes wide open, afraid that if I fell asleep, they were going to come and eat my hair away or something like that. It just terrified me. And uh, so I, I did decide one day that I was going to clean this place up. I went and I bought a bunch of cleaning supplies. I spent four or five hours. I cleaned the kitchen. It looked nice. And I was excited about it. And then within about four days, it looked just the same again. It just decayed into this horrible mess again. And so I just kind of gave up. And I fell into sort of a low-level despair throughout the summer. And uh uh, ended up just playing video games with a friend of mine for about five or six hours a day. He'd come in, you'd see the mess, and you'd just ignore it and sit down and tune it out. And uh, right in the middle of that, I-, I began to wonder, what has become of my life, right? I don't seem like I'm fulfilling my potential. I'm living in squalor. I am, uh, I am spending most of my time playing Street Fighter 2, and uh, it's just not the life that I imagined for myself or I imagined that my parents dreamed of on that day I was born. I was living below the level of dignity that I should have been. And maybe you felt like that at different times in your life. Maybe it was like my situation. Maybe it was choices that you made that brought you to a level that you thought, this isn't really what I'm made for. Maybe it was things outside of your control, Uh, whether it was sickness or whether it was the way other people treated you 
Maybe they treated you with contempt. And you found yourself in a situation where you thought, this doesn't feel like what I was made for. I feel like I was made for something great and something mighty. And yet right now, that's not how I'm living. And it doesn't take long to walk around your world and see that the glory and the dignity that we would like mankind to have, he doesn't always have. On a weekly basis, uh, our college staff uh, goes down the street to the nursing home over here. And on a weekly basis, we see often the loss of dignity and the pain that comes when people are toward the end of their lives and they are slowly but steadily decaying toward that day when they'll be in the grave. And they've lost their physical ability and they've lost their mental faculties and their dignity is not what they would like it to be. And maybe for you, it is an issue of sin. There's some private sin that you're struggling with and, and it's humiliating to you. And it's embarrassing, and yet you can't seem to shake it. And you go, this doesn't seem like what I was made for. And at times, we wonder, what's going on? Is there any kind of remedy for this sort of problem? As as you look at the scripture, it seems clear that God has created mankind for something great, something wonderful and glorious, Uh, If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God creates all of the animals and the earth and the sky and the plants, and yet it's only mankind that he has created in his image. He creates mankind in his own image to reflect God and to rule over creation in the image of God. If you read Psalm 8, which is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2, it says God placed man just a little lower than, than the angels and ultimately intends mankind to rule that everything is in subjection under his feet. And yet we don't always see things happening that way. As we look at the book of Hebrews this week, what we're going to get to is the author of Hebrews is going to answer for us, how do we deal with this problem that mankind has been created for greatness, but he doesn't yet experience it? That mankind is made to reflect God, and yet often we don't as we should. And as if you've been following us through the book of Hebrews, what you've seen is the author of Hebrews has been arguing uh, the supremacy and the might and the majesty of Jesus Christ and that in Jesus Christ alone, we find relationship with God. In Jesus Christ alone, we find uh, perfection ultimately and we find life. And now what he's going to say is in Jesus Christ alone, that we will see humanity restored to the place that God intended only in Jesus And I love this passage because as you read through this passage, what you begin to understand is that this passage helps us answer some of these deep questions of self-worth and significance that we struggle with. When we think, am I really worth something? Do I really matter? Also helps us understand and deal with issues of sin. What do I do when I deal with, when I'm struggling with sin? How does sin relate to my life as a human being created in the image of God? Where have we gone wrong? And so the author of Hebrews is going to walk through for us, what has Jesus done to redeem humanity? Ultimately, yes, to give us eternal life, but also to re-elevate humanity to the position that God intended. All right, so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. And first he lays out the problem. The problem is this, humanity's destiny is unfulfilled. Humanity's destiny is unfulfilled. Look at verse 5. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? 
You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So the problem is this. God has made mankind for a purpose and yet we don't yet see mankind fulfilling that purpose. Our destiny is unfulfilled. Is anybody in here engaged by any chance? Anybody? Okay, yeah, a few of you guys are engaged. All right, I have a friend, a roommate from college, that uh, when buddies of ours would get engaged, he would say, congratulations, welcome to purgatory. All right, that was his... uh, standard phrase. Now, some of you immediately got where he's going with that. Uh, Theologically, uh, he didn't believe in purgatory, neither did I. But the point is this, just as purgatory is a intermediate limbo state between uh, what you are and what you hope to be, so is engagement. You are not quite dating, but you are not quite married. And so there are elements in which you're beginning to merge your lives together. And yet there's a lot of differences between engagement and marriage. When Shannon and I were engaged, I remember thinking it's exciting to look forward to the wedding and to the marriage, but there are many things right now that I'm missing. One is uh, we would spend time together and we would enjoy each other's company, but I always had to drop her off at the end of the evening. And those of you who are engaged, maybe you're feeling a little bit of that. You drive her home and then you drive back home by yourself, right? Yeah, it's sad. It is sad. I know, right? Right? Uh, You live in different houses. You have different names. One day you will be a family with the same name. And yet right now you have different names. The obvious one, of course, is there's been no physical consummation of the relationship. At least there shouldn't have been at this point in time. And yet you, you look forward to that and you're waiting for that day. And so you're almost, but you're not quite yet. And so maybe you sit around with some married friends and you think, I wish that was me already because it's this intermediate state. The destiny that you have hasn't yet been fulfilled. And, and as you look at the scripture, interestingly, our relationship with God in Jesus Christ is often portrayed as the relationship between a bride and a groom. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And when you get to Revelation 19, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and sets up the new heavens and the new earth, he invites everybody and he says, come join the marriage supper of the lamb. And the idea is that humanity, particularly those that God has redeemed in Jesus Christ, we haven't yet seen the fullness of our destiny fulfilled. We are destined to rule as God's representatives over the earth. We are destined to do so as perfect reflections of him. And yet we don't see it yet. And as a result of that, there's pain. And often we feel this loss of dignity. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So we walk through our lives and we feel like, man, I I know I'm, I'm made for something great. And we try to chase that something great, maybe by uh, ensuring that everybody knows our name. Maybe by ensuring that we one day have a lot of money and we're comfortable. And we chase after these things because we believe they'll make us great. When really what has happened is God has placed within us the stamp of his image. And we are destined for greatness, but not earthly greatness. We're destined for an eternal and heavenly greatness. And yet we don't yet see it. And the reason is because of sin. 
when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they ate that fruit and humanity fell, God cast them out of the garden where they had a perfect relationship with him and with one another. And they no longer can reign as he intended them to reign over his creation until that time when there is redemption. And so the author of Hebrews sets up this problem and then he gives us the solution, right? The remedy. And so the problem, humanity's destiny is unfulfilled. The remedy, the remedy begins with incarnation. Incarnation, look at verse nine. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. All right, the idea is this. We don't see humanity yet ruling over God's creation like we were destined to do. But what we do see is this. Jesus Christ is now crowned with glory and honor. And the reason he's crowned with glory and honor is because he became one of us. And as one of us, he took our death upon himself and he suffered as we suffer. And the passage goes so far as to say that in his suffering, it says the author of our salvation, that is Jesus, was perfected through suffering. Now that's a challenging phrase. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was somehow deficient in that he was morally deficient? He sinned and so he had to be made somehow better. No, that's not what it means. All right, a better translation might be he was completed through his suffering. All right, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. It's not that Jesus in himself was somehow morally deficient or sinful. Instead, Jesus' resume as the one who could perfectly represent us and perfectly represent God, was not yet full until that time at which he suffered like we suffer. He overcame temptation like the temptations we experience. He died and he defeated death and will one day die and in Jesus Christ have victory over death. The idea is that by becoming a human being, now Jesus Christ can perfectly represent God And he can perfectly represent me. So he has everything that is necessary because he suffered on our behalf. Jesus shares our humanity. He became one of us. A few years ago, I was watching PBS or something like that. And I ran across a show about a man named Sean Ellis, who was a biological researcher who decided to do an unusual research project for about 18 months. He actually uh, lived with a pack of wolves. Uh, He decided, I guess, that this would be a good idea. He'd be able to get into their mind. And so he studied them. Uh, Here he is. This is uh, him all dressed up like a wolf, right? This is uh, not his high school yearbook photo. This is a photo later on in his life. Uh, What he did, 18 months he lived with these wolves. He actually became the alpha male among the wolves. I don't know how he pulled that off, but uh, he did. He raised three wolves as members of his own family. And uh, toward the end of the experiment, he said this, although many people refer to wolves as savage killers, incidentally, I I do, uh, I have come to know and love them as family. So this guy decided the way that I'm going to understand these wolves, the way that I'm going to help them out is I'm going to literally become one of them. So he lived among them. He dressed himself like a wolf. He acted like a wolf. He ate their food. 
He wrestled with them. He was there among them. Now, the reality is no matter how long he lives with wolves, he's never really going to be one. He's never really fully going to understand them because he can't. He's not one of them. But as we look at the book of Hebrews, what we see is Jesus actually became one of us. In fact, Hebrews says he became like us in every respect except one, and that is he didn't sin. And so he walked in our footsteps and he understood the challenges and the temptations and the trials that we face. He died a human death. He suffered in life. And so he became one of us. And as a result, now he's qualified to be our savior. I've worked at a number of places in my life. I've worked at grocery stores and uh, I worked at a law firm one summer as a clerk. I've worked at fast food places. And uh, one of the things I've observed at some of the different places that I've worked is that uh, often the boss doesn't necessarily uh, mingle a whole lot. The big boss, the owner, doesn't always necessarily mingle a lot with the common employees. Uh, When I worked at a grocery store, I never saw the owner of the place. I knew he was up there because there was this one-way glass up above us, and I knew he was watching us from above, but I rarely ever saw him actually come down. And if he did, it was just to walk the floor, and then he'd go back up. But there was one place that I worked. I worked at a Chick-fil-A in Dallas for a while. And the franchise owner would actually come out of his office at busy times. And he would stand at the register next to me. And he would work the register. Or he'd go back to where we made the chicken. And he would actually make sandwiches and hand them out. And there was something at first a little intimidating about that. Having your boss and owner right there. But then there was something kind of cool about it. What was cool about it was I thought, well, if he is willing to stand at the register and do this, if he's willing to stand back there and sweat over the fryer and make the chicken, there must be something important and significant about what I'm doing. It must matter. So by his presence out on the floor, he elevated the status of what all of us were doing. All right, and that's what Hebrews is saying about Jesus. Humanity, we have lost our glory. We have lost our dignity because of sin. We're subjected to death. We're subjected to the attacks of the enemy. And yet what Jesus does is he comes down among us. He stands beside us. And when God in the flesh lives among us, that elevates all of us. That's why Hebrews says he's, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Quotes a few Old Testament passages to that effect. The idea is because of Jesus Christ, we're now brothers to the very Son of God. And we're related to him and we're children of God in a very new and special way because of Jesus Christ. Athanasius was a fourth century bishop in Alexandria. Wrote this about the incarnation, the enfleshment of Jesus Christ. He says, for the solidarity of mankind is such that by virtue of the words indwelling in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Even so it is with the king of all. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in his power, has simply ceased to be. When the king lives among us, he redeems humanity and he does so through his incarnation 
Hebrews also says he does so through atonement. Look at verses 14 to 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus Christ not only became a man, but then he also partook of our flesh, but then he did something that nobody else could do. And that is through his death and his resurrection, he overcame the power of death. And the idea is that all of us were under slavery to death before the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus overcame death. He beat it. And it no longer has power over us. When I was in college, a friend of mine enjoyed this kind of shoot 'em up video game where you'd kind of just walk around these levels and you would just shoot people. And uh, he enjoyed it and I would play with him sometimes. But uh, he started dating a girl who deeply objected to this game. It, uh, it offended her every time she walked in the room. She was disturbed by it. And as we talked to her, she said, it's because it's violent. It uh, debases human life. And we were like, well, it's, it's a cartoon, right? It's not really real people. And we went back and forth. And uh, she's like, why do you play it? And her boyfriend, my friend, was like, well, I think it's fun. I think it's funny. It's enjoyable. And finally, in, in the heat of this argument, she said, death is not funny. And uh, we all kind of stopped arguing. We thought, well, that's really a pretty good argument, right? Death, uh, <laughs> death is, uh, it's not funny. There's not a whole lot you can say to that. Now, we could argue all day whether the video game is okay or not, but she has a very profound point. Death is not funny. We look around our world and, and death is painful. It is the highest and worst example of how the enemy has taken hold currently of our world and of how sin leads us to a place that causes us to lose the glory of God. And so we see these horrible tragedies in our world, whether it's 9-11 or Columbine or the collapse of the Aggie bonfire, and we go, that's not the way it ought to be. And often we sit at a funeral, and even it's a funeral of, of an old person who lived 90, 100 years. Sometimes we comfort ourselves by saying, yeah, they had a long life. And yet still in the back of our minds, we go, but not, not long enough. There's a pain that goes along with death because of sin. Right? And what the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus beat it. We're no longer in slavery to it, so we don't have to fear it anymore. And he had to become one of us in order to do that. He had to take on death in our place and by rising again, defeat it. Right? And that's the message of the gospel. That If you believe in Jesus Christ, now you are attached to him. And his death is your death. And his resurrection is your resurrection. So that when you go into the grave, you have a promise that one day you'll be resurrected. And death will have no hold. Jesus defeated our death. He overcame it. In doing so, he also satisfied God's wrath. Verses 16 to 17. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. All right, that word propitiation, it's a big word, but essentially what it means is he satisfied the wrath of God. The concept goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, this Greek word, hilasterion, has the idea of a mercy seed. And if you think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was an Ark of the Covenant inside of the temple in the most holy of holy places. And the Ark of the Covenant had this seat on top of it where the angels would stretch across their wings. And once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sacrifice on behalf of the people, a goat, a ram, and he would sprinkle the blood over that mercy seat. And for the next year, their sins were covered. Their sins were atoned for. God's wrath was deferred. Now, what the author of Hebrews says is Jesus Christ now is a more faithful high priest. Why? Because he's both priest and sacrifice. He's a perfect person because he is God in the flesh. And so he perfectly reflects God and he perfectly reflects me. And so God sees the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says, I accept that not for the year, but I accept that once and for all. And God's wrath on, on us is taken away because of what Jesus has done. That's propitiation, a critical New Testament concept when we think about Jesus Christ. And his atonement then finally allows him to help us in our temptation. Atonement allows him to help us in our temptation. Look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In other words, Jesus Christ beat temptation. He beat sin. He beat death. So if you're struggling with sin, who do you go to? The one who's defeated it. Some of you might be a person who likes to work out, go to a gym. And uh, if you go to a gym and you walk in and you're going to sign up, they're going to send out a trainer, most likely, who's going to talk to you about your fitness goals and what you want to do and eventually how much it's going to cost. But I've noticed when you walk into these places, the trainers are always in excellent shape, right? They're always attractive people. If they're guys, they've got lots of muscles all over. If they're girls, they're attractive, good-looking girls, and, and they walk up and they say, what can I help you with? And you see that and you think, I, I want to look like that person. That's what I want. Can you just put me on the look like you plan, right? <laughs> Why? Well, they know if you want to be in shape, you go to the person who's in shape. If you walked in and the trainer's sitting on a sofa eating a gallon of Rocky Road, they go, come on in. We'll help you get in shape. Grab a spoon, right? That's, that's going to be less effective. You want a person who has overcome those struggles if you want to get in shape. They have credibility with you. And that's what Hebrews tells us about Jesus. The best one to help us to overcome sin and temptation is the one who's already done it and done it perfectly. I can go to a buddy and he can challenge me and hold me accountable and that's great and that's necessary. We need the community. And I can go to my parents because they have more life experience maybe and they can give me advice. But ultimately Hebrews says, if you want to overcome temptation and sin, you need to go to the one who has all the power of all the universe, who grants his spirit to those who believe in him. And you ask him, God, help me with temptation. Jesus, help me. And Jesus is ready to help you, to provide the resources and the wisdom and the spirit to help you overcome temptation. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, the idea is his spirit lives inside you. And through him, you can know what to do in these situations of temptation and difficulty because it's the very wisdom of Jesus. Because he's overcome temptation, he can help those who are tempted. He comes to your aid. And so the idea is that Jesus' incarnation 
Jesus' enfleshment, so to speak, lays the groundwork for the salvation that we have now and the salvation that we look forward to. When one day we will reign as God's representatives over his kingdom that he establishes. And the glory for which we were made will be restored. You go read Genesis 1 and 2, then you go and read Revelation 21 and 22. You'll see all these parallels. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates mankind to reflect him perfectly without sin in a garden where they have everything that they need. And they've got the tree of life where they will live forever if they continue to obey and follow God. And yet they sin and they lose that. That relationship with God and they head toward death. Revelation 21 and 22, read it again. Mankind finds himself in a garden. Not just one tree of life, but a whole stream, a whole river of life surrounded by trees of life. And Jesus Christ establishes a new heavens and a new earth. And all of a sudden, the glory of man that he lost at the fall is redeemed, is restored again because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we worship the lamb forever and ever and ever because he died in our place and he defeated death and sin. And now, in the future, we see no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. That is the significance of the incarnation and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, you say, all right, that's, that's great. What, what does this matter for me? I think a couple of things. One is this. My significance and dignity and glory as a human being come from no other source other than that. God has loved me in Jesus Christ. So when I I sit in my room or I walk on campus and I question, am I valuable? Do I have anything to contribute? Am I important? Say the reason I'm worth anything is because God values those that he's created in his image. So much that he allowed his own son to take on flesh and blood. He didn't do that for angels, Hebrews says. He didn't do that for a dog or a wolf or any other animal. He did it for people. Because he created us to be in his image. And that's where our value and worth come from. When I'm struggling with sin, I remind myself, sin is not worthy of a person made in the image of God. Chosen to reflect Jesus Christ. And then I seek help from the one who was tempted and overcame because he is powerful to give help to those who need. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you above all things for your son, Jesus Christ. He's not only God, but also is a human being, one of us, who forever bears the scars of his death on his hands, in his side, on his feet, to remind us of the victory that he experienced over death and sin on our behalf. We pray as we struggle with sin, we would fall on our knees before you and ask for help. Father, we pray that when we struggle with our own self-worth, we would remember that it is in you that we have worth, not in anything we do, not in anything anybody says. but because Jesus Christ saw us as valuable and became a man so that we might have life. Thank you again, Lord, that you've rescued us. And I pray if there are any in here who haven't yet believed in Jesus, that this would be their day. Lord, we love you, and we pray be with us this week. In Jesus' name.
Y'all have a great week.